Well, let your Bibles fall open, I hope, to the now familiar place, 1 Timothy 3.1. 1 Timothy 3.1. We haven't read the whole passage that we're looking at in a couple of weeks, so let's read 1 Timothy 3.1 through 7. Again, we're camping out on verse 1 for a number of weeks, but let's read this whole passage on the overseers of the church. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be thought well of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. His name was Francisco Solano Lopez. And according to one historian, he goes down in history as one of the worst military generals in all of history. General Francisco Solano Lopez was the top commander of the Army of Paraguay. At the same time, the American Civil War was raging Paraguay was at war with Brazil and needed to cross the eastern arm of Argentina in order to invade a a portion of southern Brazil. But Argentina said no to this request. And so General Lopez decided to declare war on Argentina as well. Brazil was already in control of the government of Uruguay. And so Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay formed an alliance and on May 1st, 1865, declared war on General Lopez and on Paraguay. And it came to be known as the War of the Triple Alliance. And it was a horrible, horrible tragedy. One half of the entire population of Paraguay was killed. 90% of the army of Paraguay was killed in battle. And in a fit of rage, General Lopez Frantically, he was trying to assign blame and he began executing hundreds of his own people, including some of his own family members. And finally, in a relief to everyone, General Lopez was killed in battle on March 1st, 1870, ending one of the worst exhibitions of leadership in all of history. Now, why do I bring this up? Because it's very clear that when leaders are inept, when they're corrupt, those that they lead end up suffering badly those that are innocent victims of bad leadership who can do nothing to control what happens because they're not in charge. And this is, of course, true in the church of Jesus Christ as well. The the church needs shepherds who are prepared, who are qualified, who understand how to do the all-important work of leading the people of God on earth. And so as we continue looking at the church's shepherds as part of our 2021 theme of the church, the pillar and foundation of the truth, We've been camping out here in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 for a number of weeks to really explore this call to leaders in the church, both those currently leading and those God would call to the role of shepherding in the church. We have a number of men in our church right now that are at various levels and various uh, stages of being raised up to be shepherds. Last time we began looking at the idea of preparing for shepherding to really flesh out what it means to aspire to the office of overseer, according to verse 1 here. And we were using Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6, to help us understand some of the preparations that are necessary to be a shepherd in the church. And so let's turn once again to Hebrews 13. Hebrews chapter 13, and just a quick review as to why we're using Hebrews 13. You recall that there are two very important verses on church leadership in this chapter. Hebrews 13, verse 17, reminds us, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. 
Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. That's a key verse that we'll return to in other messages. Very, very rich. But perhaps a lesser known verse on leadership happens earlier in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And we said last week that these are likely leaders who have now gone home to heaven. They've lived faithful lives as shepherds in the church and they're done. And those in the church are to follow their example. Their example proved to be faithful all the way to the end. This means now that the bullet points, these commands in verses 1 through 6, contain some of these qualities of a qualified and mature shepherd. And so verses 1 through 6 can be used very confidently to help prepare for shepherding. And in fact, as I mentioned last time, a brief comparison would show a lot of overlap between verses 1 through 6 in Hebrews 13 and the qualifications of shepherds that we just read in 1 Timothy 3. There's a lot of overlap. And so we identified six ways to prepare for shepherding, and we covered three of them last time. We said that the first way to prepare for shepherding is to intensify your love. You intensify your love both for the church and for those in need of Christ and need of the gospel. And we saw this in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And then we said a second way to prepare for shepherding is to improve your compassion. To improve your compassion, keeping in mind people in the church from all walks of life and not showing favoritism. And verse 3 in particular lists believers who were imprisoned for their faith during this time of great persecution. And then the third way we said to prepare for shepherding, we said to bolster your ecclesiology, your understanding of the church. The end of verse 3 gives the reason for compassion, since you also are in the body, you're part of the church. And we talked about having the right biblical high view of the church as the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the assembly of the saints who will be together in heaven. And we even looked back at chapter 12, verse 23, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, this high, high view of the bride of Christ. And so we saw that this genuine intensified love for the church, this heart of tenderness and compassion and a robust, strong ecclesiology Understanding of the church, these are tremendous ways to prepare for shepherding. Once again, I want to remind us that these concepts are are useful for for all of us. They're useful to the church as a whole because the the more you know about shepherding, the more you know how the church ought to function, and that's good for all of us. That makes for a healthy church. And so now we pick up in verse 4, and I want to give you a, a fourth way to prepare for shepherding. We'll call this one, prioritize your marriage. Prioritize your marriage. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, it's interesting to me that when we're talking about the lofty things of the church and leading the people of God, all of a sudden here, we go back to the home, that this is important. The preacher of Hebrews says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Why is he saying this? Well, this was an argument against asceticism, which wanted to creep into the church. Asceticism says that anything that's enjoyable or even connected to the physical world is at best less than okay, and at the worst, just completely wrong. And so this was an effort to protect against that. In fact, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 3, Paul warned against the false teaching of those, quote, who forbid marriage. The idea was you forbid marriage because marriage includes sexuality, and if you just stay away from sexuality altogether, then there's less possibility of sinning. It was a monastic idea that if a Christian could simply remove himself from as much contact with the world as possible with things physical in any way, then sin is going to be reduced. You know who one of the most famous people in history to try this was? It was Martin Luther. Martin Luther became a monk. He tried to just get away from everything that could possibly tempt him. And what he found, though, is that it just simply highlighted all the more for him everything that he desired. 
It highlighted his sin. He just, he, the, the superior uh, monk in his monastery just got so weary of Luther coming to him for hours every day, with just confessing every minute little sin. I was walking down the sidewalk and I, I might have had a thought that I shouldn't have had. I'm not sure, but it was there. And I want to talk about this for an hour or two. And this other, this head monk was just, just dying, saying, why are you confessing all this? And what Luther found was that the more he focused on every single sin, the more sins he committed. He couldn't get away from it. And so the preacher of Hebrews here is telling the whole church to honor marriage. That marriage is not only not to be looked down on, but it's to be held in honor, to be esteemed. And by the way, Martin Luther went on to get married and to enjoy a wonderful married life with his wife. But there's to be a holiness to marriage. There's to be a sanctity to marriage. It's to be held in honor with the clear implication that especially those who are married should hold their marriage in honor and to cherish the other, to serve the other, to walk faithfully with the other. The preacher goes on to say, let the marriage bed be undefiled. The marriage bed here is a euphemism for the sexual union that should characterize the marriage. And and again, there's an emphasis on marriage as holy and untainted. And the preacher of Hebrews pulls no punches in immediately walking to the bedroom of the marriage as being vitally important. Now certainly the rest of verse 4 warns against the spiritual disaster and the destruction that results from sexual immorality that, that violates a marriage But the marriage bed can also be defiled in many more subtle ways, which the first part of verse 4 seems to allude to, that that it should be honored, it should be undefiled. Let me give you some of the subtle ways that the marriage bed is defiled. And and we just have to be open here and speak of the issues as they are, as Scripture does. First of all, the marriage bed can be defiled by a total separation of marital sexuality and love, by a separation of sexuality and love. The two are mixed in ways that are mysterious and are are really undefinable. The Apostle Paul warned in 1 Corinthians 6.16 against sex outside of marriage, specifically in the context of prostitution. And he gives this reason. He says, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as as it is written, the two will become one flesh. In other words, he's saying there's a union that happens at the spiritual level and one that's devoid of all the other components of marriage, sacrificial love, service, raising children together, helping each other till death do us part. You can't separate the two. Another subtle way that the marriage bed is defiled, sharing your mind adulterously, sharing your mind adulterously, Jesus was so very clear in Matthew 5, 27 and 28. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is not just a problem with men, by the way. The adulterous thoughts might have a different tone or flavor for women, but they're still there wishing you had a husband who was more kind who is more gentle, who is more godly, that is still an adulterous thought. A marriage may be having trouble with truly drawing near to one another and maybe even not be able to understand why there isn't a single definable cause. But I can almost guarantee that there's a problem at the thought level because the heart issue is impacting all the interactions between the couple because the thoughts are wrong. And this is very dangerous because once you've turned your heart and your mind against someone or you've become neutral toward that person, it's almost impossible to treat that person in a good and godly fashion. Why? Because you don't have a desire to do so anymore. You don't have that desire. You you just don't sense that love and that connection. There's a third way that the marriage bed can be subtly defiled and that is the bad habit of Christian asceticism. The bad habit of Christian asceticism. We've already talked about asceticism is the idea of staying away from all things physical. What do I mean by Christian asceticism? Well, this is the habit of maybe not at the immediate conscious level, but at some level thinking that sexuality in general is bad or unthinkable. In fact, this is an old lie 
that says that since sexual sin is a serious problem, I'll just avoid and stay away from all things sexual, even in the context of marriage. This is the same belief that makes parents decide it's just better to not talk to your children about sexuality and kind of hope that they figure everything out. Kind of hope that while you're teaching them about everything else in life, they'll just get this somehow by osmosis. There's an entire subculture of Christianity that believes that even bringing up the topic of sexuality will cause sexual sin and temptation. That's not the Bible's stance at all. The Bible is as open about marital sexuality as God wants to be in exactly the right balance. There's an entire book of the Bible, Song of Solomon, devoted to this topic. And so instead of the bad habit of Christian asceticism, it's better to speak the truth to yourself, to speak the truth to those that you're impacting. That's always how we avoid sin, by speaking truth, right? We avoid sin through truth, not through avoidance. The Bible is filled with truth about the marriage bed, and almost all of it, interestingly, is in a format that goes right over the heads of children. It's beautiful. You say, well, I I should protect my my small children from this, and we understand that. But think about this. The, The bride of Song of Solomon invites her new husband. She says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Children say, oh, they're growing stuff in their backyard. That's all they think. It doesn't take a master of divinity, though, to figure out that the bride is speaking of herself as the garden. The marriage bed can be defiled by the subtle belief that sexuality is inherently bad. And therefore, if we just never mention it, never deal with it, then we won't sin. I'll tell you this, some of the men I've talked to who have struggled the most with sexual sin were raised in homes that completely avoided the topic altogether. Why, why do you not avoid sin by avoiding the topic? Well, we all know this, that you can blind a lustful man, but he'll still lust in his mind. And it's still sin. Better to deal with it as Scripture does. Now, why does the preacher of Hebrews just get so personal here? He's not talking about the pulpit. He's not talking about the pastor's office. He's not talking about the sanctuary. He's going right to a man's bedroom. Why is he so personal? Listen very carefully. In this context in particular, the marriage bed immediately becomes the metaphor, the representation for the whole marriage. And any of you have ever done any marriage counseling, when you find out how the bedroom is faring, you also find out how the marriage is faring. The two are very similar. And so he says, let the marriage, let the marriage bed be honored and undefiled. Keep the unity, keep the closeness. There's a holiness to your marriage. It's a God-sanctified relationship that's meant to reflect the love relationship God has within the Trinity. Now, this is a tough call because those of us as shepherds, we would love to say we have perfect marriages, but we are two sinners living in the same household. But there is a preparation aspect, and I want to talk about this for a moment. How does this idea of preparing for shepherding intersect with being married? Well, at a basic level, if you're married, you can already be a shepherd at some level because you already understand concepts such as compromise and patience and listening and leading with love and forgiveness and closeness. You're no longer in the habit of simply doing what you feel like because it came to your brain at that moment. Rarely do you do that. Marriage then becomes a proving ground that you can engage in a human relationship at a heart level that's, that's vitally required for shepherding. But I want to give you some other more specific reasons to prioritize your marriage as a shepherd or one preparing to shepherd. And, and this is really good for all of us, but it helps us understand the gospel ministry as well. Let me give you five reasons you would prioritize your marriage as a shepherd. The first one is because marriage should be a help for the ministry. Marriage should be a help for the ministry. When I was in seminary, I heard many wise professors urge men not to marry women who are, who are not completely partnered with them in their calling to the ministry. The marriage is designed for the wife to be the helper to the husband in very practical ways, and this is needed more than ever in the gospel ministry, whether you're a vocational pastor or a lay leader in the church. And sadly, in seminary, I got to know men whose wives were a liability. They weren't a help. And several of those men predictably have failed in the gospel ministry because their wives weren't all in. 
They weren't all in with his calling. They were more concerned that he exists solely to make her happy, that that became his purpose was her happiness because she wanted to be first all the time to the exclusion of his calling to the gospel ministry. The second reason to prioritize your marriage because marriage is also a sanctuary during the ministry. Marriage is a sanctuary during the ministry. There's a reason that Paul equated the gospel ministry in 2 Timothy 4 to a fight and to a race and 1 Corinthians 9 as a boxing match. Paul never said the gospel ministry is like going to Disneyland. No, he said it's like going to war. There's a war, there's a race, there's a fight. Leadership in the church has its joys and its triumphs and sometimes sometimes I would love to sometimes I'd love to just tell you all the reasons I love the gospel ministry and I'll I'll do that at some point but it does have its challenges it has its agonies because this isn't a career you don't ever clock out it's a calling it's the heartbeat of who a man is and your marriage has to be a place of refuge and escape one which the wise leader doesn't let others intrude upon and listen this is so important Long after ministry challenges have come and gone, your wife will still be there. And she needs to know that while Christ can call countless men to the gospel ministry at any time, Christ has called just one man to be her husband, and that is you. That's so important. I have no no fantasies about the idea of being irreplaceable. Oh no, Grace Bible Church will do just fine if I drop off the face of the earth. That's the reality, because God can simply call up another one. There's a third reason to prioritize your marriage. Because ministry can be a challenge to the leader's wife. Ministry can be a challenge to the leader's wife. To a, to a great degree, the minister of the gospel never clocks out. Ministry's always on his mind. There's a burden for the church in the best sense of that word that's always in the background. And at times, the wife of a leader becomes the default complaint department in which people feel a freedom to be critical and demanding when all she's trying to do is go pick up her kids from the nursery. That's all I was trying to do is go get my kid. And you told me all the reasons my husband's the worst preacher ever. I didn't want to know that. And so your marriage has to be built to withstand the winds of the challenges of ministry, the challenges of the ups and the downs and the, the busyness that never lets up. So there has to be a sense in which there are some unshakable foundations that your wife knows that she is cherished and near and dear. And while no godly woman would ever want to be responsible for having her husband step out of ministry, every wife needs to know you're more important to me than the ministry. They have to know that. There's a fourth reason to prioritize your marriage because ministry should be a blessing to a leader's wife. It should be a blessing to a leader's wife. There are tremendous blessings to being married to a shepherd, getting a firsthand look at the life of the church, getting to interact with the lives of those in the church alongside their husband. Those are, those are joys. Getting to be a part of a mission together in the church. But this joy is taken away when there's so much tension that, that blessings of the church can't be enjoyed any longer. There's one more reason to prioritize your marriage. And this is good for all of us. Because a failing marriage can take down a church. A failing marriage can take down a church. You know, Satan doesn't generally go after the dear and precious souls who collect the hymnals after church. But he does go after the ones who are called to set an example. He goes after the ones who are to be a source of spiritual comfort and strength and security. The church needs to see that their pastors and elders love their wives. Because one failing marriage can rock a church to its core, can it? And we've seen this happen throughout church history. Prioritize your marriage. Well, chapter 13, verses 1 through 6, is this set of bullet points of seemingly unrelated things. So let me give you a fifth way to prepare for shepherding. Reinforce your contentment. Reinforce your contentment. Verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Who is the person who is loving money and who can't be content with what he has? This is the 
malcontents. This is the covetous man who has to have more, who thrives on the drug of the pursuit of wealth, or worse, thrives on the drug of the thought of wealth. In fact, some of the worst lovers of money are not wealthy people, but there are people who believe that money and things and a bigger home and a nicer car and better this and better that will somehow create happiness, and it never does, and they're never finished pursuing that. And that sort of covetousness and idolatry is totally antithetical to the gospel ministry. They can't exist together. And look at the antidote. Be content with what you have. Now, why can we be content with what we have? Well, the preacher of Hebrews quotes Joshua 1.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, this is very interesting to me. Because the use of this particular quote is so important in this passage because we're seeing it as preparation for shepherding. What's the original context of this quote from Joshua 1.5? It is preparation for shepherding. I want to show you this. Turn with me to Joshua 1 near the beginning of the, the Old Testament. This is worth taking a moment to examine. While you're finding Joshua 1, I want to be reminded, have you be reminded of an important concept concerning your Bible. I don't know another place to put this. I'm just going to stick it in here. There are upwards of 360 quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And in none of these cases does the New Testament usage of the Old Testament try to change the original meaning or the context. It's always the same. In other words, the New Testament writers never ripped an Old Testament verse or passage out of its originally intended meaning, nor does the meaning change over time. The Israel does not become the church. Land does not become blessing. It doesn't happen. Now, there are a wide variety of applications and implications used when the New Testament uses the Old Testament, but the original context is never violated. Now, with that understanding and keeping in mind that Hebrews 13 definitely has a strong leadership flavor to it, it's very appropriate that the the preacher here gives an admonition about contentment with the encouragement from God that he'll never leave the one who's leading his people. And that's the basis for contentment. Look at the preparation that God gives Joshua. It's very reminiscent of Hebrews 13. First of all, God reminds Joshua of his example. Just like Hebrews 13, 7 says that the leaders are to be an example. God reminds Joshua of his, of his example. Chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Twice. The great and mighty Moses, the epitaph given by God is that he is simply the servant of the Lord. He is the example. So God reminds Joshua of his example. God also reminds Joshua of his dependence. He reminds him of his dependence. In verse 3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great River, the great Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. Key phrase, I have given to you. Dependence on the Lord. Any success that Joshua has in the coming conquest of Canaan will be solely and only because of God. And then third, God reminds Joshua of his contentment. And what does he get? How does he derive his contentment? Verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. There's the quote. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Now you notice something. Joshua and Israel don't yet have the land that God has promised to them. But since God has promised to help his people, and in this particular case, his chosen leadership, things like covetousness and greed in any form, this is useless. It's totally useless. God's people are secure no matter what comes. They they don't own the land yet. They're not there yet. But why can they be secure? Because God says, I will not leave you or forsake you. The so-called security of worldly possessions 
It's no security at all. And ironically, Israel was better at trusting God before they had a bunch of stuff. And once they were secure in the land is when they began deviating. This becomes very important for both lay elders and vocational pastors. For, for lay elders, lay elders can inadvertently set a bad example when they get overly consumed with worldly possessions to the detriment of spending the time necessary on the work of the ministry. If a man is working 70 hours a week and does nothing in the gospel ministry and yet he holds the title of elder, he's not being an elder. He needs to have a balance. And for vocational pastors, this becomes very important. And I'll tell you why. We live by faith every month of our lives in the ministry. We're dependent solely on God through the generosity of a grateful people, and that's you. And so if you get too hung up on stuff as a pastor, you get a little bit nervous. There, there is no job security as a pastor. When COVID started, we were all kind of polishing up our resumes just a little bit. We didn't know what was going to happen. We don't have, uh, we don't have a system in the church whereby we're going to get a year's salary or something if something happens. We don't have that. And so if you get too hung up on stuff, you're going to be nervous all the time. And listen, I got to tell you a personal note here. When I was walking through Joshua 1 and then Hebrews 13, this just ministered to my own soul so much. It really did because the church, church leadership, we live in a world of spiritual battles every single week. That is our world. We are fighting in prayer for you. We are fighting to, to properly, rightly divide the word of God. But as a shepherd, we're reminded that all contentment, all joy, All peace is based on the fact that God has promised never to forsake his own. And of course, that applies to every Christian, doesn't it? To get to the end of your life and to say, I spent my whole life being worried about everything. That's sad. We don't want that. You want to look back and say, I walked through life with contentment and joy. And so... In this passage, God is preparing Joshua to shepherd God's people. And it's the same preparation as the shepherding of the church found in Hebrews 13. Turn with me back to Hebrews 13 now. And I want to do one more, give you a sixth way to prepare for shepherding. The sixth way to prepare for shepherding. And we'll call this one, deepen your courage. Deepen your courage. And I'm going to spend the majority of my time this morning on this. Deepen your courage. Chapter 13, verse 6. So, we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? As is very common here in the book of Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews cites the Old Testament once again. And what he's giving us here, I won't have you turn to it, But he's giving us some highlights of Psalm 118, verses 6 and 7. Some would say just verse 6, but I think it's a combination of the two. The highlights he gives, he says, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 118, 6 and 7 says, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Now, what is Psalm 118? Psalm 118 is a psalm of procession as a worshiper of Yahweh comes to the temple to offer his gifts, to offer his thanksgiving, to offer his gratitude to God for deliverance and for salvation. It also serves as the last psalm of what's called the Egyptian Hallel, Psalms 113 through 118. This was to be sung during the night of Passover. In fact, Christ himself sang this psalm, Psalm 118, the night he was betrayed. He's about to face the cross. He's about to face humiliation. He's about to face agony. He's about to face the judgment of God on our behalf. And yet he sang, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. That's courage. And unlike us, you know, when the disaster hits us, the the one saving grace is that we didn't know it was coming. How would you like to know everything bad that's going to happen to you in your whole life? You wouldn't get out of bed. Jesus Christ knew every exquisitely 
agonizing detail of what was coming up. That's why he was sweating drops of blood as he cried out to God because he knew what was coming. And yet he said, I will not fear. What can man do to me? One of the biggest obstacles to effective ministry is the fear of man. It is the fear of man, of making the goal of ministry to please people. It can't work. I want to give two cautions about pleasing people. And this is good for you as church members because you know how to pray for your shepherds. And it's good for those who are shepherds or going to be shepherds so that we stay the course. Let me give two cautions about pleasing people. First, shepherds of the church cannot try to please the world. Shepherds of the church cannot try to please the world. Anytime whatsoever that the world begins attempting to set the agenda for the church... And it's up to the shepherds to keep the church on track, to say, no, 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 we stay on track. Anytime we even start trying to compare the ministry of the church to whatever the latest fad in in social justice or on social media might happen to be, we've tainted our hermeneutics in that now we're studying the Bible in one hand and studying the culture in the other and trying to combine them. And that never, ever works. We've mentioned often before, pastors James Coates and Tim Stevens, faithful pastors in Alberta, Canada, they they were arrested, imprisoned for continuing to meet with their churches. What's mind-boggling to me is the sheer quantity of people claiming to be Christians who have blamed them for their own troubles, who have blamed them. They should have believed the science, it was said. They should have loved their neighbor by keeping the church at home for a year. They said they should have done what other pastors did, keeping their churches closed for over a year to obey a health order from an unelected official. The pressure is intense. Why were there only two arrested? There should have been 200. There should have been 2,000. There were only two. The pressure on churches today to succumb to a worldly agenda is greater than I've ever seen it. You cannot let the church set the agenda, uh, the world set the agenda for the church. They view the church as sort of some sort of uh, uh, social justice organization that we sit around finding causes and going out and fighting those causes. That's not what we're about. I've never seen such pressure to preach about things like reparations to certain ethnic groups. This makes certain people the moral judge of all the others instead of trusting the sovereign God who has been working in an evil world all the way since the Garden of Eden. The pressure to preach about and become activists and things like the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement is calling upon victims of sexual assault to come forward. That's nothing new. The Bible has always taught that sexual immorality and assault is wrong. That's not somehow a new discovery that the world is saying, hey, church, you need to be talking about this. Now, the Old Testament gives the death penalty for this. That's 3,500 years ago. That's nothing new. That's nothing original. The Black Lives Matter movement, which is at its core not about the fair treatment of human beings, but it's an ideology of the destruction of the traditional family, and it's an ideology of creating a totalitarian government. That's what it's about. And it's run, by the way, by corrupt people making millions and millions of dollars to buy multiple homes to pad their own bank accounts, just like, by the way, communism and Marxism has always done. That's what they believe in. And that's not some major discovery. Just go to their website and read about it. How about the whole pride movement encompassing gender changes, gender identity, homosexuality, any kind of sexuality that you can possibly imagine. The alphabet is not long enough now to try to categorize all the ways that people want to be categorized sexually. And the pressure on the church is to see this as a, as a humanitarian effort. Oh, we should feel sorry for them because they've been, been oppressed. No, I want to feel sorry for people because they're headed to hell, regardless of what the sins are that get them there. But in the church, we're told to ignore the will of God on these matters. The will of God is very simple. God created mankind as male and female, and he instituted human marriage as between a male and a female. In fact, the move in the church is disturbing to reinterpret 
Bible passages concerning homosexuality. This is a massive movement. There, there are whole books written on new, a new hermeneutic, a new way of studying the Bible to reinterpret this. One little problem, reinterpreting Sodom and Gomorrah gets a little tough. Cities destroyed by God because homosexual sin became the norm. It became the norm. I will never move within two hours of San Francisco. If it becomes too much more than norm, who knows what's going to happen. During the Great Tribulation, when those 100-pound hailstones, I think, are coming, I think a couple of them are aimed for Northern California. And Listen, the minute the shepherds of the church, and it's been happening by the thousands The minute the shepherds of the church get sucked into having their Bibles in one hand and the world's agenda in the other, the church is going to suffer. It's going to suffer. The shepherds of the church can't succumb to fear of man from the world. We can't do it. There's a second caution about pleasing people. The shepherds of the church cannot try to please the members of the church. The shepherds of the church cannot try to please the members of the church. Now, I know this sounds counterintuitive, but I think you'll see what Scripture's focus is. Now, we've spoken often to you as church members to beware of a, what, what some have called a consumer mentality in which the church is merely a company that ought to be working to make you happy, which puts you in a constant attitude of evaluation. Do you know that we've had people visit Grace Bible Church just so they can leave a Yelp review? They're just going from church to church to church. And in one particular review, we felt the need to leave a rather lengthy uh, rebuttal to that review. Because the question that we asked in that review is, what church are you accountable to? What elders have told you to go do this? Who do you think you are? To leave a Yelp review. I think we got three stars. It's like, okay, well, you're not consumers. You're members of the body of Christ. You're members one of another. The pinky doesn't say, well, I don't like this hand. I'm going to cut it off. No, you're part of the body. But the shepherds of the church, on the other hand, can't fall into the trap of treating members like consumers either. Jesus got off the boat from crossing the Sea of Galilee, as recorded in Mark 6.34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. It doesn't say, when he went ashore, he saw a great group of potential customers and he had a desire to make them happy because they're like buyers without a salesman. And he began to sell them many things. Oh, most certainly there's to be a measure of tenderness and and listening and knowing your needs. But can I tell you this? The greatest singular need you have is shepherding toward Christ-likeness. Whether you agree with that or not will not change it. Instead of pleasing customers, shepherds are to be about the business of shepherding the sheep, of feeding your weary souls the word of God. Here's the irony too. By having as the goal not to please the sheep, but to shepherd the sheep, the sheep become joyful. They become happy in the Lord, eager to be fed, yearning to hear the word of God and yearning to gather together. Shepherding is not always a process that feels good. It's not always a process that makes for temporal happiness. Sometimes the cuts to your own soul are deep and they're necessary wounds to let the pus of sin out. And wrong thinking seep out of an infected part of your life. And in fact, a continual effort to please people, whether outside the church or inside the church, is going to have two horrible effects. First of all, it's going to fail because you can't please everyone. Frankly, I found as a pastor, I can barely please a couple of you. There just isn't time. But the second horrible effect is that for the shepherd, that failure then is going to lead to despondency and despair. Because you never feel like you're doing enough. You didn't have the courage to do the work of the ministry as unto the Lord instead of unto the people. I don't work for you. I work for God for your benefit. There's a big difference between those two. What does this mean? Well, it means as shepherds in the church, we stay in our lane. We we stay true to what leaders are called to do. It's not really that many different things. The job description of the shepherd in the church is small. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 narrows down the job of shepherding to three things. Lead, work, and instruct. That's it. Lead, work, and instruct. 
And the implication from many other passages of the New Testament is that the work of leading is done primarily in the instruction of God's word. That's it. And we ought to have great confidence in the shepherding ability of the instruction of God's word. And I want to just hammer that point home just for a moment. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, just a few pages over from Hebrews 13. 2 Peter 1, I want to just show you how sufficient the Word of God is in the context of the instruction of the Word and how this is how we're to stay in our lane and not try to please people. 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 3, first half of verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. By the power of God, we're granted all things, complete, total, everything possible that pertain to life and godliness. I've said this before, but I'll never forget, as long as I live, a couple coming to see me in counseling, and they said, we've tried God in the Bible, now we need therapy. That makes no sense. That's like saying, I've tried radiation and chemotherapy. Now I need to be hit in the head with a rock. No, you're going backwards. All things pertaining to life and godliness. The world has nothing to offer to you spiritually. Nothing whatsoever. But how is it that we receive this totality of spiritual wealth? How do we receive this endless wealth of divine power? Second half of the verse through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, through the knowledge of God, the one who himself has called us, who has saved us. And how do we have the knowledge of God? Only because he's chosen to reveal himself. He's chosen to reveal himself, generally speaking, in creation, and he's chosen to reveal himself specifically in the word of God, in the scriptures alone. And by the knowledge of God which comes through the scriptures, what are we also granted? Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We receive the promises of God. They're said to be precious. They're said to be great. Promises revealed in only one place, and that is in the scripture. And all these promises center around escaping the effects and the consequences of our own sin. And so we have our bibliology, the the firmness of our instruction and how rich it is established in verses 3, 4, and 5, or 3 and 4. And look how quickly Peter goes from explaining the divine power of God through the word of God that has granted us everything for life and godliness. Look how quickly it goes to instruction in life and godliness. Verse 5, for this very reason, what's the reason that his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him found in his word? For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the lane that the shepherds of the church are to stay in, to keep instructing in the word, instructing in the word. But how does it take courage to simply stay in the lane of this instruction in the life-giving word of God? I want to get very practical in regards to courage as a shepherd of the church and just give you a few applications of courage. First of all, courage means speaking the truth without regard to how people feel about it. Courage means speaking the truth without regard to how people feel about it. If shepherds worry about how people feel, then ultimately we become the ear-tickling preachers and teachers of 2 Timothy 4 with the motivation to please God now being, being replaced by a motivation to please man, to develop a growing congregation by making you happy. I just have to wonder, I wonder if the prophet Elijah, when he stood before King Ahab, 
In 1 Kings 17, thought about Ahab's feelings before he said, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Be blessed. Be happy. Elijah is literally standing before the king of Israel, and yet he proclaims, I stand before the Lord. Now, I might be physically here before you, but you're not the one I'm serving. I'm serving God. I think Elijah had a pretty good idea how Ahab would feel about these things because eventually he was running for his life from the very one to whom he was preaching. Courage means speaking the truth without regard to how people will feel about it. There's another application of courage. Courage means occasionally calling out falsehood that could harm the church. Courage means occasionally calling out falsehood that could potentially harm the church. On occasion... A sermon arguing against something is necessary. These are sometimes called polemical sermons. It means to make an argument. Because there is a something or a someone that's taken a small root, uh, has taken root in the congregation. It may happen as an individual conversation as well. In fact, Titus 1.9 says that shepherds of the church are to be able to refute Bad doctrine. That is your job. There's a third application. Courage means not taking every ministry opportunity possible. Courage means not taking every ministry opportunity possible. In the church, shepherds are faced with a thousand good things to do every week. What's the choice, though? The choice is we must choose a few great things to do which will have the greatest impact. Yes, not doing some good things will leave some people disappointed, and we understand that. But we're to keep our eyes on the bigger picture of shepherding the whole body. Let me give you one more application. Courage means trusting the work of the Word over the course of many years. Courage means trusting the work of the Word over the course of many years. I have favorite sermons that I've preached You have favorite sermons that I've preached. I I don't know whether to be encouraged or discouraged when somebody tells me, wow, that's the best sermon you've preached in six months. Well, what about the other 5.75 months? I'd love for every sermon I preach to have a wow factor. I'd love to have a zinger. I'd love to have something I know that none of you knows. Oh, I'd love that. But the fact is that the shepherds of the church are to provide instruction, whether it's in individual shepherding, whether it's in teaching in an informal setting, whether it's preaching the word, whether it's instruction through the hymns and the songs which we sing week in and week out with consistency, with regularity. And this takes a measure of courage. And why is this? Because the world demands something totally different. The world demands entertainment. The world demands innovation. The world demands something new, something fresh, something radical, something with pizzazz. Every time. I preach at Grace Bible Church somewhere in the vicinity of 110 times a year. Can't be pizzazz every time. It just can't. But I'll tell you this. The admonition, preach the word, has never changed. It's remained and it shall remain. And the ministries that I look up to the most, the men who are my role models, are the ones who just week in and week out for 10, 20, 30, 40, in some cases 50 years have just never changed what they do. That the first words, twice on a Sunday, open your Bibles too, every week. And for those of you as potential future shepherds, I gotta tell you this now, you must know your lane and you stay in it. You do what pleases God and you let God deal with the results. Because if you waver, if you think about, well, maybe I should try this, maybe I should try this, when innovation even becomes a part of your thinking process, you're done and you're going to go off track. You stay in your lane. Now, here's an irony. And I love this. The irony to this determination to deepen your courage, you know what it actually does? It has a cleansing effect on the church. If you as a shepherd or a group of shepherds will simply stay true to those few tasks to which we're called, eventually the church transforms into a people, listen to this, who are only pleased when we stay true to what we're supposed to be doing. And so then you may please God and people simultaneously because the church has grown up into that. 
I've talked to pastors who have gone down the seeker-sensitive road with their preaching and have repented of it, and then they've said, I don't know what to do. I got a whole church full of people that expect me to make them happy. What do I do? Start preaching the word and watch them leave until the few who stay are cleansed and then the church will begin to grow. You've got to put the church in a medically induced coma through the true and living gospel and let the, let the fluff and let the chaff go. One pastor wrote, I preached the church down to four and then God started doing something. Stay to your lane. Stay in it. One of the great things about being a preacher It's one of the few professions where the older you get, the more gray hair you have and the more decrepit you are, the more people respect you. Nobody wants a 22-year-old senior pastor. Why? Because they haven't done anything yet. They haven't hurt yet. What went wrong with old General Francisco Solano Lopez? Why was he so inept? Why was he so ruled by his own passions and apparently had no problem seeing the people who was supposed to protect devastated by overwhelming force? Clearly didn't care for his people. Why was he a problem? Because General Francisco Solano Lopez was the spoiled son of the dictator of Paraguay, Carlos Antonio Lopez. And Lopez, the leader of Paraguay, simply gave the military to his rotten, inexperienced son, Francisco. Even the dictator warned Francisco. He said, don't use the military to settle diplomatic issues. This was advice which Francisco completely ignored and literally cost the lives of one half of the population of an entire nation. General Lopez was unqualified, he was immoral, and he was vastly unprepared for the real-world challenge of leadership. Can I tell you this? Shepherding is not for the faint of heart. Not at all. It's not for the armchair quarterback who watched as a church member for a few years and says, I think I can do that. But most of all, it is not for the unprepared. It's not for those who believe they deserve to be shepherds because they read a book once or they taught a Bible study for eight weeks. There are sheep to be shepherded and the shepherds must be prepared. Why is this so important? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ we're talking about. These are eternal things we're talking about. These are lives that you're messing with. The most holy knowledge available to mankind is found in the word of God and the shepherds are the ones who are to disseminate that knowledge. It's the only knowledge which makes the difference between life and death or joy and judgment or heaven and hell. And so the ministry of shepherding is approached with awe, with trembling, with sobriety, with fear. And with this heart attitude of humility, Paul said of himself and of his fellow ministers of the gospel in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, here's the attitude, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Did you catch that? Paul's goal was to please God with a heart of a shepherd. And so my prayer is that God would continue to raise up faithful shepherds around the world and that God would raise up faithful shepherds. It is my prayer that in the decades to come, many of you and maybe some of your little boys who are upstairs will look back and say at Grace Bible Church, God called me to the gospel ministry. That's my prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, prepare the men. The church needs men. The church needs shepherds. Prepare them, Lord. Prepare them for a great and mighty work. Our world is getting worse every day and we're watching it. It is happening so fast. Oh, Lord, bring up the shepherds. Even the little group of men that that I meet with, our Timothy training troop, these men in the midst of, of preparing for the gospel ministry, Lord, raise up more Raise up godly lay elders in the church, men who know the word. Raise up men who believe that it is not an idle word for you. It is indeed your life. Lord, the church will rise and fall on the success of her leaders. And so I pray you would be gracious. The shepherds that are here at Grace Bible Church now, Lord, give us a heart of humility, of leadership, of determination. This is not a hobby. This is not a sideline. This is 
the work of eternity. And Lord, I pray for some young men in our congregation that you would lead them to a pulpit someday. And I pray for some little boys upstairs who have no idea even who Christ is yet, but you would bring them to Christ and you would bring them to a love for your word and light a flame in them that some of them might preach for 40, 50, and 60 years and let many of the young men in our church be raised up to be elders either here or in other churches, wherever you would call them. Raise up your men so that the church might exalt Christ. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.